Welcome to our midweek time of prayer <clears throat> and devotion. I'm thankful that you've joined with us this evening. Uh, our text tonight is going to be from Psalm 149. But before we get to that, I want to open in prayer and uh, ask the Lord's blessing on our time together. So let's pray and then we'll get into the scripture. Father, thank you for your blessings from today, for the hope and the strength that you give us each day. And we're mindful that uh, you are worthy of our praise and our adoration. Uh, Lord, you alone are worthy. And as we go through this week, may we be reminded of our need to be dependent on you for all things. And I pray that you would encourage our church family, some they're dealing with uh, loss and sickness and other difficult issues right now. Uh, we pray for a continued uh, improvement in our overall circumstances. And, Lord, we want to uh, be back to some, some regular activities. And uh, we just trust in you and pray that you would give us what we need during this time. Uh, so bless us now as we look to your word. And I pray that it would be an encouragement to each one of us. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight I want to speak to you from Psalm 149. And we've been in the Psalms uh, during the summer, and as we enter in here to September, we're going to continue and finish up with Psalm 149, and then next Wednesday with Psalm 150. So if you do have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn there. I'm going to read the passage here in just a moment. Uh, but our devotion tonight is entitled, Live Joyfully in Praise. We all know that praise is central to the Christian life. Uh, praise is commanded in the Bible. It facilitates our access to God. The Bible says that praise is inhabited by God. Uh, it promotes our faithfulness. It chases away worry and despair. And it's an effective defense against temptation. But most of all, we praise because God is worthy of our praise. Psalm 149 has been referred to as a primer on worship. As with the other psalms in this grouping from 146 to 150, it begins and it ends with the words, praise the Lord. Let's go ahead and read Psalm 149, beginning in verse 1. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song and his praise in the assembly of saints. Let Israel rejoice in their maker. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. Let them praise his name with the dance. Let them sing praises to him with the timbrel and harp. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He will beautify the humble with salvation. Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud on their beds. Verse 6. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the written judgment. This honor have all his saints. Praise the Lord. Dr. Henry Jowett, uh, who lived in the latter part of the 19th century and the early part of the 20th century said 
We tend to leave our places of worship and no deep or inexpressible wonder sits upon our faces. We can sing lifting melodies and when we get into the streets, our faces are one with the faces of those who we've left behind. There's nothing about us to suggest that we've been looking at anything stupendous and overwhelming. Ultimately, praise should lead us to a place where we are acknowledging something that is stupendous and overwhelming, and that is God. One preacher applied the principles of journalism and research to this particular psalm. He said, who are the worshipers? They are the saints. They are God's people, and they are his children. What is the focus of worship in this psalm? Praise to the Lord is the focus of worship. Where is the place of worship? Congregationally in the assembly of the saints, where we worship God collectively. Why is worship to take place? Because of the salvation of the Lord, who meets us in our humble hearts, and then we show gratitude to Him. When is worship to take place? Both continually as an act of our lives, as well as at the appointed times. Because as we know from a New Testament perspective, we are the temples of God. We are the, the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to give you two big ideas tonight from this psalm. The first from verses 1 through 5. The second uh, from verses 6 through 9. The first is we can lift up joyful praise as a secure people. We can lift up joyful praise as a secure people. Now, this psalm was probably written when the nation of Israel returned from Babylonian captivity. They had gone through much because of their disobedience to God. Uh, they had expectation coming out of the captivity of a new hope and of a brighter future. They knew what they had experienced because of their disobedience to the Lord. And they were looking for something better. Alan Ross said the hymn celebrated a recent saving victory, perhaps the deliverance from exile, but it replaces the normally expected existing calls for praise with a sign of things to come. You see, throughout the history of Israel, there was the expectation of the Lord bringing them not only to a place of immediate victory, but there was an anticipation also of the eternal victory that was to come. They anticipated a future when there would be a perpetual and eternal worship of God, where worship would be restored and peace with God and peace in God uh, would reign. Now, ultimately, I think that the psalm looks forward to the end of time when the Lord will finalize a powerful victory. So there's a, an overtone of a messianic hope, if you will, but there was also an immediate application in the lives of the people. I think that can be true for us as well, that there would be the overtone of the messianic hope that we would have for the future, but we would also have the reality of an immediate hope. Verse 1 speaks of a new song that's a song of testimony about salvation. Salvation makes us realize how we lacked praise to God 
before we came to know him. So our testimony takes us to the place that we have a new song in our hearts because of our relationship with God. And this is a song that only the redeemed can sing. Now, I believe that God loves to receive the rejoicing and the praise of his people, especially in song and especially in a new song. Now, as a bit of a parenthesis here, uh, we are getting ready to reintroduce some congregational singing. It's been a bit controversial even from the beginning about uh, how concerning congregational singing was to begin with in the midst of all this pandemic talk and uh, many congregations never stopped. Uh, we, out of an abundance of caution, kind of pulled back on some of our singing, and we're going to reintroduce it uh, with a measured uh, approach. But you'll be glad to know that there's going to be some congregational singing coming back because that's central to our worship of God. Verse 2 says that we're to rejoice in our Maker. We're to be joyful in our King. Now, one thing that I really appreciate and I'm thankful to God for is that he's the king who rules without partiality. He always rules with equity. He rules with perfect wisdom and complete goodness. So with our God, there is never a political angle uh, you know, on behalf of what he's doing for us. Uh, there's never a wrong or impure motive for what he's bringing to us. It's always for his good, our good, and for his glory. And for that, we can give him praise. Now, there's some specific things that this psalm talks about in relation to who God is. He makes note that God is our creator. And really, a foundational truth of the Bible is that God is the creator of all that there is. Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Isaiah 40 and verse 28, Do you not know, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. He's the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. Psalm 104 and verse 23 says, How many are your works, O Lord? In wisdom you have made them all. We've heard that phrase probably uh, prepare to meet your maker. Sometimes it's meant in almost a humorous type of sense, but it's not humorous at all to think about the fact that each one of us will appear before our creator God, the one who is the designer and the craftsman of all that there is in the universe, the one who has created us in his image, meaning that we're just a step above the rest because we've been created in the image of God. And the most sober thing that any of us could think about in life or eternity is that we'll one day stand before God, our creator. Every one of us has an appointment with God. God sets the appointment. We don't know when it's going to be, but we need to be ready for it. Verse 3 says that we're to praise his name with the dance. Now, Miriam led the dance after the crossing of the Red Sea. Uh, it's also reminiscent of David uh, when he brought the Ark of the Covenant back uh, to Jerusalem. And we don't think a lot about dancing, maybe, uh, especially in a worship form in Baptist circles. 
but it's certainly a biblical concept. And the mention here of specific instruments is interesting also because the tambourine, or what's referred to as the timbrel here, um, was not allowed in worship in the temple. But here's when the people used it. They used it in times of procession and times of rejoicing. Now, you can only worship this freely in the dance of worship or in the instruments of worship if you are certain of your security in the Lord. See, we're going to be reserved when we're not certain of our security in the Lord. But God is our creator and he is worthy of our praise. He also makes the point that God is our king. This is a theme that's repeated in the Psalms. Psalm 47 and verse 7 says, For God is the king of the earth. Sing to him a psalm of praise. He's sovereign. And I want you to picture God as king being enthroned over all of his creation. And he is the king of kings. Now, when we speak of a king, we have to have a kingdom. And the kingdom of God is both present and eternal. It is both now and future. The king himself was born on the earth as a human in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus' message was frequently, repent for the kingdom of God is near. He was telling the people to get ready. And he would repeat that several times in the Gospels. And the kingdom was made visible through the preaching of the good news. Yet, Jesus also said, my kingdom is not of this world. He recognized that he inaugurated the kingdom. And he also taught the people to anticipate the kingdom. Now, verse 4 tells us that the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He does us good. He will adorn us, those of us who were meek and humble before him. And he takes pleasure in his people. I want you to think about that tonight, that God takes pleasure in you as his child. He loves you with an everlasting love. He loves you more than anybody else could possibly ever love you. He's the creator. He's the king. And then the scripture makes it clear that he is our savior. Now, being right with God is a matter of your response to what God has done on your behalf. He sent the savior who provided the sacrifice to take away your sins. And he offers this eternal promise. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the promise of scripture. And he says, let them sing aloud on their beds in verse five. The idea that is that in the meditations of the night, when the darkness is the most pervasive, and that's all that surrounds us, our hearts can be full of joy. Have you ever noticed that all your problems seem worse at night? When the sun goes down and maybe you're alone or maybe you're uh, even uh, lying there awake trying to go to sleep, your problems seem like they're magnified many times over from what they do in the middle of the day. This is a reminder to us that we can sing aloud on our beds. We can meditate on the Lord because he's good. In the darkness, we can look to the light. In the uncertainty, we can look to the one who has brought us security. God is our creator. He's our king. He's our savior. And God is our peace. 
When the psalmist talks about peace, I think it's something that everyone wants, but few seem to find. Peace is ultimately our well-being. It's peace with God, and it's the peace of God. It's shalom that comes only from the Lord, that we can only find in Him. And I want you to know that we, we can praise the Lord for what He's doing now. We can hope in what God is going to do in the future because He is our security. I love this illustration from the uh, Hibernia oil platform in the North Atlantic. It's 189 miles east-southeast of St. John's, Newfoundland, Canada. As a fixed structure, it sits in 88 yards of water fastened to the ocean floor. The total structure is 246 yards high from the ocean floor to the top of the derricks. Unlike the faded Ocean Ranger, a platform that sank in 1982 with 84 men on it that were lost at sea, the Hibernia's design incorporates what they call a gravity-based structure which anchors itself to the seabed. The structure does not move. What it forms, in effect, is an artificial island. The Hibernia was built as a stationary platform because it sits right in the middle of what they call Iceberg Alley. The icebergs that uh, are in these waters can be as large as ocean liners. Sixteen concrete teeth surround the Hibernia. These teeth can distribute the force of an iceberg over the entire structure and into the seabed. Get this, the Hibernia platform is built to withstand a one million ton iceberg that's only expected every 500 years. And designers claim that it can actually withstand six million tons with repairable damage. Even with all of these protective measures, the Hibernia's designers take no chances. Radio operators plot and monitor all icebergs within 27 miles. Any that come close are essentially lassoed and towed away from the platform by powerful supply ships. Smaller ones are simply diverted using the ship's high-pressure water cannons or a propeller wash. Now, as rugged and as strong as this platform is, and as prepared as it is for icebergs to strike, the Hibernia makes it certain that icebergs won't even get close. They've put the procedures in place to ensure the safety of this platform, the security of this platform. Now, this is a wonderful illustration for us of how our God surrounds us. We are not guaranteed that there won't be immediate crises or even things that might even lead unto death. This life is not guaranteed. It's brief. It's but a vapor. But eternally speaking, we are secure in the hands of our God because He is our Creator, He is our King, He is our Savior, and He is our peace. And then the second big idea here is found in verses 6 through 9. We can lift up joyful praise as a victorious people. We're not just a secure people. We are a victorious people. Now, the specific situation 
I believe, is that Israel was going to be God's agent of judgment on the Canaanite people, specifically for their idolatry. Not only uh, had God brought judgment on them, but God was going to use them as an agent of judgment to the nations that surrounded them. And I think, again, there are some future overtones to this in the Messianic kingdom as well. But you remember when God promised the land to Abraham and his descendants, uh, there was a specific statement that the evil was to be wiped out around them and that the people of God were to walk in obedience with God. And he says here in verse 6 that high praises were to be in their mouth. Now, literally, the way this word is translated is that high praises were to be in their throat. Anything that is lofty and exalted was to be lifted up to God. The verses here, interestingly, speak of double-edged swords, vengeance, punishment. The idea of a double-edged sword is literally a sword of edges, meaning that there is a blade on either side of the sword. And then verse 7 speaks of executing vengeance. And you better believe that God is going to deal with sin. If he did not deal with sin, then his holy character would be violated. But God's going to deal with sin. So even when we look at injustice in the world and we look at sin and wrongs that are being done, we know that God is going to set all things right because it's a matter of his holiness and his justice. Verse 8 speaks of binding their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron. Uh, the idea of victory and absolute dominance is continuing on. And then he says in verse 9, the judgment that is written in the law. Now, what is the standard by which people will be judged? It will be the very holy character of God which defines and characterizes righteousness and also serves as the instrument of judgment. So God's righteousness is the measure. You see, the law was the reflection of God's holiness. It was the reflection of his righteous character. So I think this is another way in verse 9 of simply saying, according to the scriptures. So you see, it doesn't matter how humanity tries to redefine scriptures or just blatantly deny scripture or mock the idea of God or turn a blind eye to the concept of God and being accountable to him. It does not change the reality of God's holiness, his righteousness, his justice, and the judgment that is to come. Now, Israel was the specific agent of judgment and obviously, the church is not Israel in that sense. So we're not the agents of judgment in that regard. However, we will rule and reign with Christ. And all judgment has been entrusted to him. And I think that we can begin to experience victory now uh, over sin and live in holiness by using the right weapons. You say, what are the right weapons? They're the ones that are not carnal, the ones that are not worldly, but instead are the sword of the Spirit, which are uh, the Word of God and is the Word of God applied to our lives. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 10 
in verse 3 through 5. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Did you know that one day we're going to experience the ultimate victory because of the victory that Christ has already won at Calvary? It is certain you can mark it down. And in that sense, Psalm 149 is an eschatological psalm celebrating the victory that is the victory of our Lord. I love this uh, statement by Amy Carmichael, who was the longtime missionary in India, who served there for 55 years without furlough. She said, Before the winds that blow do cease, teach me to dwell within thy calm. Before the pain has passed in peace, Give me, my God, to sing a song. Let me not lose the chance to prove the fullness of enabling love. O oh, love of God, do this for me. Maintain a constant victory. So here's the deal. The victory's already been won in Christ through the cross and the resurrection. There is a victory that is yet to come in an eschatological sense in the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there is a victory to be lived in, in the here and now, by the power of the Spirit, informed by the Word of God, living lives of holiness. And that's the victory that the Lord has for us and that He wants us to live. Now I'm going to give you this idea and I'm going to come toward a close this evening. If we have security, and we do, and if we have victory, and we do, then security and victory should lead to faithfulness. Our security and our position in the Lord, the promise, the certainty of the victory, should lead to faithfulness in our lives. Listen to what Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and verse 3 and following. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you uh, all abounds toward each other, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith and all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Let me paraphrase that very loosely with this. Hold on because you're secure in the Lord the victory belongs to you and better days are coming god is calling you to a life of faithfulness and if you live a life of faithfulness he'll honor that and in the process he'll be praised because of it you see praise is our privilege and praise is our responsibility and the word of god leads us to a faithfulness that is not dependent 
on our feelings. Praise is not optional. And I think Psalm 149 finds its ultimate fulfillment in the book of Revelation. Revelation 6 and verse 10 says, O Lord, holy and true, how long until you judge and avenge our blood from those who live on the earth? And then the answer comes in Revelation 19 and verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and he makes war. You see, the rider on the white horse is Jesus. His coming is imminent. His victory is certain. And on that day, there will be rejoicing in the king. I want to share this piece with you, the final victory from Jeffrey Brown, and then I'm going to pray. Some will tell you that triumph will come by the development of human beings, the gradual evolution of their potentialities, we should just give it time, wait and see. Everything's coming up roses. He said, but wars have dealt that theory a cutting blow. Will human progress and achievement ever, ever wipe away all of the tears from our eyes or heal our broken hearts? He says that to ask these questions is to answer them. In all of the brokenness of the world, the final victory will not come through some natural progress of human development nor through the religious forces that are operative in the world right now. The victory will not come through the improvement of the present order. The highest point of human history will be the sudden appearance on the field of battle of the captain of our salvation. And he will come in glory. And it will be comparable to what John beheld in the one who is faithful and true. The one on whose head are many crowns friends he's our hope don't ca get caught up in hopelessness don't get caught up in the solutions of the world we look to our savior and we look to our god who is worthy of our praise let's bow our heads together as we pray together god you know the needs of every person that is listening to this message Maybe there's somebody listening who has never met you. They're not ready for that appointment that they're going to have with you someday when they'll stand before you as their creator. I pray that they would claim the promise of Scripture that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And I pray that they'd be willing to turn from their sins and turn to Jesus and say yes to him and receive him by faith, believing in his death and his resurrection and his soon return. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ, and these are some uh, disheartening times that we're living in. There's so many that are looking to human progress for the answers, and there are many that think uh, their answer will be found in a political party or a movement or some solution that a man has. And God, man in all of his brilliance is, is without the answers. God, our answer, our hope is in you. So help us to look to you as our creator, as our savior, as our king, as our peace, and as the one who's going to take us home eventually to eternity. May we find our trust and our hope in you. Bless us to that end. I pray that the Holy Spirit would come alongside of us and through the word and through the spirit we would be encouraged and we'd be undergirded and strengthened and we'd be like that platform that I spoke of that we would be absolutely 
unshakable in this life or in eternity. And I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for joining with us for this time of prayer and devotion. And I look forward to uh, seeing many of you either in person or online this coming Sunday. And we'll be praying for you in the meantime. Have a great rest of your week.